his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. Welcome to Face Connecticut, an in-depth look at today's issues. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Face Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080, 96.5 TIC-FM and Light 100.5 WRCH. Aaron Kupek with you this Sunday morning and we are pleased to be joined by Dr. Casey Jordan, a criminologist, behavioral analyst and an attorney in private practice in Ansonia. She's also a professor in the Division of Justice and Law Administration at Western Connecticut State University in Danbury. Good morning to you. Good morning. In recent weeks, two survivors of the Parkland, Florida high school shooting and a Sandy Hook father have taken their own lives. It's difficult to think of a more traumatic event to have to live through than a mass shooting. But especially in the case of Jeremy Richmond, his death comes as quite a shock to the community. He was someone who has been so outspoken about brain health and even started a foundation to honor his daughter, Aviel, who died at Sandy Hook. But clearly, Dr. Jordan, there are lasting psychological wounds. There absolutely are. And there will be nuances between the sort of experience that an actual shooting massacre survivor, someone who was in the building, had a gun pointed at them. The the experience they have may be different from that of the, the family member of a victim. And yet, at the same time, it all kind of gets captured in the basket of survivor's guilt. Because... This is something that people experience when they survive a life-threatening situation or are trying to support somebody or have a family, even an additional sense of responsibility. And we very often have seen this historically. People who have fought in war, very related and similar to PTSD, Holocaust survivors, organ transplants, recipients, people who have survived forest fires, natural disasters. It all kind of comes down to the idea, I have survived this against all odds, But what about everyone who didn't? Could I have saved them? Could I have done something differently? And it's very important that people understand this is not based in logic. So many emotions are not based in logic. Uh, But it is very real to the people who are experiencing it. There's the saying that time heals all wounds, but that's not necessarily the case, is it? It is not necessarily the case for those who are very invested in the causal factors for the life-threatening situation which they have survived. Now, this is important. Most people can logically process the fact that they are not responsible for an earthquake or or a forest fire, a mudslide, uh, you know, a tsunami that has taken all of their loved ones and their family members. And so that is the, the level of survivor's guilt that can be easier to overcome with time and to grieve for the lost and to realize that you can um, live a positive life and let their legacy shine through you is very often the light at the end of the tunnel that pulls people out of the pit of depression following this sort of episode. However, when it is an unnatural disaster, if you will, a man-made disaster, and we are specifically talking about 
a shooting episode, a massacre where someone had access to guns who should not. Someone needed mental health care and did not get it. Sometimes the survivor's brain spins, if you will, in an endless Mobian 8, uh, an infinity, if you will, How could this have happened? Why didn't it stop? Why didn't somebody see the signs? Why did I survive and nobody else did? And it is an endless cycle of questions for which there are no answers. Now, couple that with a hope, perhaps a legitimate belief, a reasonable evidence-based belief that things should now improve based on this episode, based on what we have learned and witnessed from this, uh, in the case that we're speaking of, mass shooting. Why isn't anything changing? Why aren't gun laws changing? Why isn't mental health more available? How come our schools aren't changing? You know, when we keep expecting people to learn from a disaster that we have survived, and not only does policy not change and practice not change, but in fact, and this is the case, we see more shootings, we see more school massacres, we see more people getting guns and using them in an irresponsible way. For the logical person, this might just implore us to pick up the fight. But for a survivor, this is a death knell. This makes them feel even more guilty, even more responsible, because they survived something and wanted to change and are working to change the situation. But not only are things not getting better, in some cases they perceive that things are actually getting worse. And I do believe that that is the situation, the the downward vortex, psychologically, if you will, for both the Parkland survivors who took their own lives and for Jeremy Richmond. What are the lessons to be learned here about how we can better support survivors of extremely traumatic crimes? There are some very important lessons to learn, particularly with Uh, family members of survivors, because sometimes they get less attention and less care than the actual survivors who were there on the scene. And in many ways, they're grieving. It's, I don't want to say it will never go away, but the process is going to be for the rest of their lives. Uh, They feel that they were responsible for their loved one and for a parent to lose a child they're going to think there should, they should have been there. It should have been their life that was taken. So, you know, what, for people who survive these things, they very often have flashbacks, a lot of difficulty sleeping. They feel immobilized and numb and distracted and disconnected. Not unlike PTSD. It's just a different brand of PTSD. And the feeling of helplessness is what we can work on with them. They need to take self-care seriously. And we don't know why talking about it helps, but it really does help. If you know somebody who's in this situation, you need to pin up your ears. You need to be there for them at all times, no matter how often they need to talk about it. I don't care if it's been years. I don't care if it's been decades. If they need to talk about it, you need to be their friend and listen. To the extent that they need more help you can offer, you need to encourage them and support them into getting professional help. And there are so many new techniques that can help survivors of these sort of disasters. But sometimes that means actually helping them make the phone call, driving them in your car, having breakfast at the diner, and then walking hand in hand with them to that facility, to that center, to that therapist who is going to give them the professional help they need. Help them go the extra mile. Make sure they have your number and know that they can call you anytime, middle of the day and night. So that is very much the first the first uh, step in making sure they're getting the immediate care they need. But beyond that, 
focus on the issues that are important to them, the actual change that they are demanding so that this doesn't happen to somebody else. If there are policies that you believe should change, laws that should change, mental health uh, bills that you want to vote for, be an activist alongside your friend who has suffered this loss. And that is one of the greatest ways that you can support them to show that you are in this fight with them. Understand it's not going to go away in months or even years. You are in it for the long haul until the change is palpable, until we see a diminishing in these sorts of acts. Again, we can't do much about natural disaster, but we can do a lot about the causal factors for mass murder. And if your friend who has survived this horrible, unthinkable act of violence needs your help, understand that it takes a village. And we need to get out there and fight for the change so that these things don't happen again. That will bring them more solace than a casserole or your vigil, your prayers. The person who needs help might not necessarily come to you and say, I need help. How do you, in a non-pushy manner, check in with them and say, is there anything I can do to help? One of the first things you need to keep in mind is that in our very high-tech world, we are mistaking social media for friendship. We are like, oh, we have never been more connected. I'm seeing my friends on Facebook and Instagram all the time. They're doing just fine. Social media is an artificial presentation of a person. It is the, the face they want you to see. It is not necessarily an accurate depiction of the inner turmoil that they are feeling. And in fact, it's a really good way to distract and, and dissuade people from the truth that is lurking inside your head or your heart. So, number one, unplug. Stop relying on social media to connect with people and really devote yourself to face-to-face -to -face meetups. And we need to kind of resort to our pre-internet days of having people over for game night, having potluck suppers, doing the impulsive same day, calling somebody up and saying, let's go for a walk. Let's go to the diner. Do you want to walk your dog? Let's go do something. You cannot imagine how just your face-to-face -face genuine interest in seeing this person and having a conversation really can change them. I have talked to so many people who have had suicidal ideations who talk about the pain that they were in and how they felt like nobody noticed, nobody cared. And then out of the blue, somebody called them and said, let's go, uh, I don't know, go for a walk, go to happy hour, let's go to the mall. Uh, and they didn't even have real insight into the pain or turmoil that the suicidal person was experienced at that time. But the random outreach from that friend, however distant or however fleeting, was enough to pull them up out of the pit of pain to get their evidence-based logic back and survive another day and realize things aren't that bad. What must change when it comes to how we as a society talk about suicide? We need to destigmatize suicide and all forms of mental illness. But suicide in particular is something that, you know, we talk about it when, when celebrities like Robin Williams, mm. Anthony Bourdain, I was thinking Chris Cornell, a number of people uh, in the music industry. And we're always shocked when this happens. And people say the signs were never there. And yet, when you do a little bit of, uh, you know, reconstruction of what was going on in their lives up to that moment, remember, it doesn't have to be a traumatic event. It can be a lifelong 
battling depression and feeling like nothing is getting better. Very often you look for a, a snap, a breaking event, but it doesn't have to be that. It can be the straw that breaks the camel's back, could be feeling in that pit of pain and no one reaches out to you when you need it most. That on top of a lifelong of hardship, anxiety, mental illness, the battle with depression, a lot of people lose that battle. You have to think of it as a battle. One of the things I think we can do, and this is a bit controversial, but I really do believe in it, to destigmatize suicide is to stop talking about it as committed suicide, but succumbed to their dangerous self-harming thoughts and really refocus it on the pain that people are in. To the extent that obituaries routinely say that a person died suddenly or died unexpectedly, we all know that's the code word for suicide. And although this may not be a popular opinion, I think that even though this may cause the family of the person who lost their life, took their own life, a lot of anxiety, putting it in the paper, putting it out there, my son, my daughter, my loved one, my parent, took their own life because they lost their battle with depression. Say those words. Or they overdosed because they lost their battle with addiction. Be very clear, very honest about the roots of mental illness, the roots of addiction, the struggle with pain that resulted in the loss of life. That can inspire those who go, wow, I feel that too, but I don't want to take my life they can understand they're not alone and reach out and get the help they need. Let's take the stigma off of it. There is nothing negative about it. It is simply a mental illness and the outcome is very negative, but help is always available. When you use the term committed, you use that when someone committed murder, when someone committed an assault and suicide is is not a crime. It's not a crime any longer. I mean, it used to be on the books, but let's just change the way we think about commitment. It sounds like someone is headstrong. But think of all of the people who stand on bridges and don't jump. I mean, there was just a a really beautiful piece of footage just last week from some police officers who were approaching a man on on a highway overpass who was ready to jump. And you saw on their chest cams as they got up, he was weeping and they took him to the ground and they said, you don't really want to do it. You waited for us. You know, you really don't want to die. You waited for us. We are here for you. And that sort of reassuring language was, I mean, it almost brought me to tears. That is the sort of reassurance people need when they are in that pit of depression and pain. So you don't commit suicide so much as you succumb to the pain. And it is for many people a feeling like drowning and all they want is a lifeline. They want someone to throw them a raft. And if we are aware of that and really just see the slightest signs and reach out with that lifeline, you would be shocked at how many people can be pulled up. We can't really measure prevention. We have no idea how many people have changed their minds, lived another day, gotten on top of that depression, gotten the help they've needed because of one random act of kindness by a stranger or a friend that made them realize they can get through it and live another day. They're not committed. If they were committed to it, I think almost everyone would be dead because we have statistics that indicate virtually everyone has fleeting thoughts of taking their own life at some point within their lifetime. The key is to remember that you can get on top of it, seek help, reach out for friends. Don't be afraid to say, this is the kind of day I actually need someone to have dinner with. Would you go out with me? Would you take a walk with me? 
don't be afraid to just say it that way and and pick your friends carefully. Pick the ones who could also use your help. If you make a partnership with another person who's also striving to improve their lives, you can actually feed each other with positivity instead of negativity and find that life is worth living. You're listening to Face Connecticut. We are talking to Dr. Casey Jordan, a criminologist, behavioral analyst, and an attorney in private practice in Ansonia. She is also a professor in the Division of Justice and Law Administration at Western Connecticut State University. University in Danbury. Talking about crime in general, Connecticut and the nation as a whole have seen crime drop to the lowest level in around a half century. What factors are behind this? There are so many factors behind the reduction in crime. I have to point out, let's just start with the obvious, that some of it is tied, without a doubt, to demographics. We have fewer kids being born in those years that are that are now what we call the crime-prone years, which, by the way, in the 50s, your crime-prone years were more like 18 to 25. But with this advent of kids growing up way more quickly these days, and I would argue more quickly than they should, you know, with access to the internet, with access to uh, virtual technology and and schools that uh, are teaching them skills that we didn't used to learn until adults. Let's be honest, a lot of times kids miss their childhood. So we now find that your crime-prone years are more likely to be 12 to 17. And the advent of crime, in other words, we call it the age of onset, how young a person is when they first get involved in crime, is the biggest determinant of who ages out of crime and who becomes a chronic offender. So there's some, let's put some silver lining on the age of technology. We do have a lot of uh, young people these days who instead of turning to crime, they're not out on the streets like they used to be. Now, this is a double-edged sword. I'm a big fan of free-range kids. I think kids should be outside, they should be playing, running through the fields, riding their bikes, playing stickball with other kids in the neighborhood. But we also know that kids who are on the street, particularly in urban areas, with nothing to do, no sports to play, no good boys clubs, girls clubs, scouting organizations to focus all of that energy, no YMCAs for them to go to, we know those are the kids who very often can find trouble. So... Two things. We have demographics. How many kids are in the age-prone population, or sorry, the crime-prone population of kids eager to go out there and find trouble versus how many programs are available to them to keep them preoccupied through those teenage years till they get to the other side. More kids are going to college. More kids are very prepared to enter the workforce with real marketable skills. So we have that old saying that uh, idle hands are the devil's workshop. And I think that in Connecticut in particular, we have very much funded and advocated, not only in our public school system, but with grants for nonprofits, for uh, the RESCs, for, for after-school programs, for summer programs. We have kids on a really great pathway so that they can survive those teenage years where they're very tempted to get involved in crime and end up on the other side employed, college-bound, secure, and Uh, when kids are secure, have income, have opportunities, when adults have opportunities, they are far less likely to resort to crime. So it's a combination of demographics plus economic opportunity, I think, in Connecticut that could be responsible for our lower crime rate. Do you think this is cyclical? I mean, crime can't continue to drop forever. 
That is a very good point. So it's cyclical because, again, it is tied to demographics and job opportunity. But I would argue the biggest X factor or red herring in this right now is drugs. And this is where the real interest and controversy comes in because the bulk of the crimes that we are seeing are in some way drug-related. And there's three different ways that can happen. Uh, We call it the economic compulsive link to crime, which means people selling drugs to get money because they don't have any other opportunities to work or make income or survive. Uh, We have the psychopharmacological uh, impact of drugs. And that means people who are under the influence of drugs, people who are using drugs, particularly opioids, meth, those really scary drugs like Flaca and bath salts, which can cause Psychotic breaks can cause people to, you know, literally rip their eyes out, harm their children, kill their dogs. I mean, that sort of thing is very frightening, and and we have seen some of that in Connecticut. But the last one we have seen, uh, and so far we're doing okay in Connecticut, is what we call the systemic link, and that is violence related to the drug control trade. In other words, the drive-by shootings that we saw in the 90s. in, In Hartford, in New Haven, in Waterbury, those have very much abated because the face of our drug problems has changed. And to a large extent, whatever drug trade was being carved out in the 1990s with drive-bys and gang wars has kind of gone subterranean or it's been fixed by a very aggressive law enforcement task force. Now, if that comes back like we see in Chicago, in L.A., we could see crime go on an upsurge again. Many people argue that um, the legalization of marijuana in adjoining states is something we should be looking at. And I'm not necessarily on that bandwagon, but I think we need to look very carefully at our drug control policy and get a very comprehensive policy. We know that job opportunities can stop people from entering the drug trade, and we know that rehab and intervention can get people off of drugs and stop that cycle of drug abuse. You have to attack it from all sides, but I think Connecticut right now is in a very healthy position to deal with its illicit and illegal drug trade, to stop addiction, and to get people the help they need through job opportunities and through rehab. And I think we're one of the most progressive states in the entire United States who is facing it head on. Now, you began teaching at WestCon in the 1990s, the tough on crime, three strikes and you're out 1990s. How have things changed in the classroom and what you teach your students since then? What we teach is very much a reaction to those crime trends and patterns that you are referring to. Uh, you know, and when I started at Western Connecticut State University in 1991, we used to really be talking a lot about gangs and gang task forces. And what we've seen now is that, uh, again, it's not that drug are less of a problem, but the gang wars have pretty much abated because those territories have, have gone subterranean. And as as odd as this is, you don't really need violence to control the drug trade as much as you did in the 90s. And shockingly, it's because of the internet. It's so much crime is now operated through cell phones, through, uh, through very sophisticated ways of communicating that are not in back alleys and not with guns in your face. The drug trade has gone very high tech with regard to trafficking. It is very often run through money laundering trades that are businesses that look legit on the surface. Again, it used to just be very on the street, in your face sort of thing. And now it's, it's, It takes a lot more computer sense. We have now at Western Connecticut State, 
really worked on making our curriculum more attuned to homeland security issues, more attuned to uh, artificial intelligence issues and cybersecurity issues. So the face of crime as we know it is really about technology today. And it's also about, I would argue, in our correctional system, instead of making the punishment fit the crime, which is what Three Strikes You're Out was all about, we are now attuned to making the punishment fit the criminal. We want to find out everything about the person standing in front of the judge, the person who might be released from prison. Look at all of those contributing variables and come up with a program which is a combination of punishment, deterrence, and rehabilitation that fits their causal factors. And we find this works really well, particularly in punishing juveniles and punishing female offenders. Figure out what pushes their buttons. What kind of program or punishment do you need? Is this a person who needs to spend the rest of his life in prison? Or is this a person that if you let her out to reunite with her children, gave her a job, gave her some skills so that she never has to enter the drug trade again, as an example, would we ever see her commit crime again? That sort of very tailor-made, hands-on approach to community-based corrections is working. Uh, And it's something that over the last 25 years, we have really had to study these crime trends and focus on this kind of individualized idea of corrections. I would love to see in Connecticut uh, have us emulate the system that they see in New York with drug courts specifically, domestic violence specifically, veterans courts specifically. Get judges, social workers, interventionists, corrections officers who understand the unique variables to specific kinds of crime. I think it works in other states, and I think we should try it here in Connecticut. She is Dr. Casey Jordan, a criminologist, a professor in the Division of Justice and Law Administration at Western Connecticut State University. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Face Connecticut. I'm Aaron Kupek. Enjoy the balance of your weekend. Face Connecticut is a production of the News and Public Affairs Department of WTIC Radio. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at penfed.org slash savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone.